This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Well, Mr. Milton and I are sitting here about ready to do hopefully an hour's worth of radio, and my phone's next to me, and I take a look at it, and what's the headline? Trump campaign demands apology from CNN for poll showing Biden leading him. You just can't make this kind of stuff up. I mean, at this point, you have to look at it and go, is that Reuters or is that The Onion? Because there appears to have been some sort of harmonic convergence along the way. Since we are talking about preposterous statements, we have to note that the New York Times is now joining the chorus of people being openly skeptical in the reporting of statements that come out of the Trump White House. Like the headline, Trump falsely targets Buffalo protester as, quote, Antifa provocateur, unquote. Note of the Times, it is true, his friends admitted that Martin Gugino was an activist, a seasoned peacenik, who in a lifetime of protests has taken part in demonstrations against military drones, climate change, nuclear weapons, and police brutality. The one thing he was not, however, those who know him well said, was what President Donald Trump claimed he was on Twitter, a wily Antifa provocateur. Noted the Times, Trump's viral tweet, none of it backed by fact, raced across the internet all day, even as Gugino, 75, still lay in a hospital recovering from the head wound he sustained Thursday night when two Buffalo police officers shoved him to the ground. The article goes on. The president and his allies have often tried to place anti-fascists and other outside agitators at the center of the protest as a way to delegitimize them and to deflect from the fact that the vast majority of the demonstrations have been peaceful. But even by his own standards, Trump appeared to test the boundaries of credulity by trying to brand a retired septuagenarian computer programmer as a follower of Antifa, whose adherents are, for one thing, generally much younger. Trump's tweet seems to have been based on a report by One America News Network, a right-wing cable television channel, which claimed Gugino had been trying to knock out the police officer's radios with his cell phone. Yes, I don't know how many of you have downloaded the app to uh, jam police communications. We have no reason to suspect that Mr. Gugino is one of them. I had to laugh by the comment. I'm not even sure who made it at this point, but (laughs) the comment was that, well... He might be considered an anti-fascist protester because if he was pro-fascist, he probably wouldn't have been demonstrating. Weighing in on this, the Week magazine noted that Trump's tweeting that he would designate Antifa as a terrorist organization is a bit of an empty threat because federal law currently only allows foreign groups to be designated as terrorist entities. You know, if they do start naming domestic groups, they might want to consider starting with the Ku Klux Klan. You know, sometimes the more things change, the more they remain the same. The Nixon administration and Johnson before him, back 50 years ago, tried to pin anti-war demonstrators on quote-unquote outside agitators. I can remember watching a guy in a crew cut wearing a white shirt and tie with a very, very large telephoto lens photographing protesters on the UC Davis campus who were speaking out against the war. My understanding is they were looking very, very hard for outside agitators, perhaps communist, perhaps communist influenced. 
And, you know, thinking about it, I'd be willing to bet that the communists probably did send a few people over here to help help agitate a little bit. But believe you me, they were not the prime movers in the anti-war protests, which the intelligence agencies, FBI and et cetera, uh, quickly discovered, much to the disappointment of Richard Nixon and others. But nobody wanted to give up on looking. And so it is that today, Attorney General William Barr is saying the FBI would work with state and local police to identify members of Antifa and other outside agitators who commit and instigate violence, although he presented no evidence that Antifa was doing that. Not to say that it isn't being done, it clearly is being done. Peace in the DailyCost.com notes that three Boogaloo boys had big plans for Saturday in Las Vegas. They stopped off at a gas station en route to an anti-police protest over the death of George Floyd and filled up a gas can. They'd begun making Molotov cocktails, which they intended to launch into the crowd of protesters when they suddenly found themselves surrounded and arrested. The men, all with military backgrounds and a devotion to far-right memes, were charged Wednesday by federal authorities with plotting to attack the protests in order to further their hope for a civil-slash-race war. You know, and if we're going to look for some outside agitation, and what the hell, let's take 30 seconds and do so. I suspect that the cry being taken up here and there by people who should probably know better to defund the police was probably started by the Carl Roves and Roger Stones and Paul Manafords of the right, who, 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 who really, really need right now something to get the attention off of Trump's mishandling of both the coronavirus pandemic and the protests across the nation. I stress we have absolutely no proof of this, but that's my gut reaction. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go with my gut on that one. Because you have to look at who benefits from such a suggestion. Defunding police or disbanding police is just so playing into the hands of, of Trump and the White House that uh, well, how can you not have suspicions? Anyway. Enough said on that for the moment. We need to talk about stuff other than political machinations and and viruses, I think. And what better way to do that than to update the stories surrounding Ryugu and Bennu. And yes, uh, both of these asteroids did receive some previous mention on this program. Bennu was the target asteroid for the OSIRIS-REx mission, and Ryugu was the target of the Japanese Aerospace Exploration Agency's Hayabusa 2 Asteroid Sample Return Mission. If you looked at pictures of both of these asteroids, and we we hope you did, you'd note that they kind of look remarkably similar. They have a strange diamond shape and appear to be a conglomeration of, you know, looks like a gravel pit up in space. Well, someone did a recent analysis of how they might have obtained this unique structure, and they concluded that, well, spinning like a top, as they probably did after formation, they would have accumulated material in such a way as to make them look the way they do. I'm pretty sure none of you have lost any sleep over this. And furthermore, Mr. Millen hopes that we're not putting any of you to sleep with this. But anyway, we couldn't pass up the opportunity to talk about both Bennu and Ryugu at the same time. By the way, neither of these are to be confused with Klautu Berada Nikto, which, uh, which is not an asteroid, but in fact the instructions given by the alien spaceman Klautu to stop his robot Gort from destroying the Earth, a message which Patricia Neal is able to deliver to Gort just in time. And that comes from the movie The Day the Earth Stood Still. 
Robert Rise directed it, 1954. Uh, pretty cheesy movie, but saw it last week and enjoyed it yet again. If you have never seen it, dear listener, we can, we can give you two thumbs up on that one. And speaking of space interlopers, which we really weren't, but we are now, I couldn't resist the headline noting that the first interstellar visitor that passed through the solar system a couple years back, which got named Woomuamua, and was clearly identified as being from outside the solar system because it was moving too damn fast to get captured by the sun into orbit. Well, somebody's hypothesized because people can't seem to resist hypothesizing about this object that it may have been composed of solid hydrogen. Now, personally, based on my admittedly not comprehensive knowledge of chemistry and physics, I don't see how an iceberg made of solid hydrogen could come into the solar system and not burn up. So naturally, I went to learn more by going to Wikipedia and looking up solid hydrogen. I learned that solid hydrogen was collected for the first time by James Dewar in 1899. Yes, he of the Dewar flask. He was able to decrease the temperature below hydrogen's melting point of 14 degrees Kelvin, and there you have it. But apparently it has various different states, this solid hydrogen. And in trying to learn more about it, I discovered that, according to Wikipedia... Density functional theory calculations have been used to search for candidate atomic structures for each phase of solid hydrogen, and these candidate structures have low free energies and Raman spectra in agreement with the experimental spectra. Quantum Monte Carlo methods, together with a first principles treatment of anharmonic vibrational effects, have been used to obtain the relative Gibbs free energies of these structures, and hence to obtain a theoretical pressure temperature phase diagram that is in reasonable quantitative agreement with experiment. And of course, once I read that, I relaxed. All right, for those of you still awake, let's just jump right now to the good, the bad, and the ugly, which is a lot earlier in the show than we normally do this, but what the heck? According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for bravado. After President Trump told a Fox News host he went into the White House bunker during the protests raging around the White House, quote, for a tiny little short period of time, unquote, adding that it was, quote, more for an inspection, unquote. We assume the bunker passed muster. It was, on the other hand, a bad week last week for making fine distinctions with the news that Switzerland has formally now cleared sex workers to reopen their businesses while maintaining the official prohibition against close and constant physical contact. Said Health Minister Alan Bursett, I am well aware of the bizarre aspect of the decision. And it was an ugly week last week for marketing and labeling with the news that Nestle's plant-based burger got a little less quote-unquote incredible last week. A Dutch court found that the packaged food giant's preferred descriptor sounded a little too similar to the trademark owned by Impossible Foods, which is preparing to launch its plant-based Impossible Burger in Europe. Nestle, which has four weeks to withdraw its incredible products from retailers, expressed disappointment, claiming, the Week magazine notes with a corporate poker face, that incredible was just a descriptive term. Explain the qualities of the product. It's noted that fortunately for them, Nestle does have other adjectives at its disposal, 
It plans to launch a new burger recipe using the word sensational and uses Awesome Burger for its branding of a different plant-based burger in the United States. And I'm opening up the Improbable Burger franchise. I encourage you to do so. As for myself, I'm looking at marketing the Astounding Burger sometime soon. And in what is pretty much a good news story, but with a little bit of bad mixed in, we have the fact that According to New Scientist magazine, global carbon emissions are likely to see their steepest fall this year since the Second World War. But unfortunately, they don't think this is enough to stop climate change. I'm sure it won't be. The first peer-reviewed analysis of the pandemic's impact on emissions predicts they will fall between 4.2 and 7.5% on the year. A rise of about 1% had been expected for 2020. The Center for International Climate and Environmental Research in Norway says in terms of relative drop, you'd have to go back to the first half of the last century around World War II. Analyzing their data up till the 7th of April, they concluded that lockdown restrictions had cut daily emissions by 17% versus the daily average for 2019. This takes the world back to 2006 levels. However, doing the math, the team says the drop will make little dent in future global warming. They calculate a 5% drop would be the equivalent of 0.001 degrees Celsius less warming, though the world is on course for at least a 3 degree Celsius increase in, in temperature. And just to further lower the mood, the UK Met Office says the atmospheric CO2 levels will still be the highest in 2 million years. A report last year found that emissions must fall by 7.6% every year this decade to meet the Paris Agreement's goal of checking warming to 1.5 Celsius. Well, still, we're two-thirds of the way to that goal this year based on data up till April 7th. I I got a feeling we're going to do better than that, even though the economies are supposedly opening up all around the world. We'll see about how this is going to go. Now, you know we really can't do a show these days without talking somewhat about COVID-19. For those of you unfamiliar with uh, this particular item, well, let's just say there, there appears to be a bit of a virus passing around. And writing in The Guardian, Adam Gabat notes that a coronavirus vaccine may be a long way away, but there's already a threat on the horizon. Anti-vaxxers boast growing numbers and expanded influence that could hold meaningful sway over America's willingness to take a COVID-19 vaccine. I had a visitor to the house a few days ago, and when I mentioned vaccine, he said, oh, I'm not taking that. That stuff's poison. And evidently, he's not alone. A new AP poll finds that only 49% of Americans said they planned on getting a COVID-19 vaccination, with 20% certain they'd refuse it. In another poll, 4 out of 10 Republicans say they were unlikely to get vaccinated. Led by a who's who of discredited scientists and conspiracy theorists, vaccine opponents have been highly visible at anti-lockdown protests. Noted The Guardian, if they succeed in planting doubt in significant numbers of Americans' minds, it could have a disastrous consequence. Now, as to whether the government could mandate vaccination, a Matt Ford writing in NewRepublic.com notes that in 1905, the Supreme Court ruled on objections to a government-ordered smallpox vaccine that the need to safeguard public health can outweigh matters of personal liberty. But religious freedom challenges to a coronavirus vaccine might find a receptive audience on the Roberts Court. 
Kevin Roos, writing in the New York Times, says public health officials must mobilize for a coming information war. Coming? We're in the middle of it now, Kevin. The country needs a pro-vaccine movement, he said, that could compete with a well-oiled anti-vaccine movement skilled at fear-mongering. Millions of lives and trillions of dollars in economic activity may depend on it. This whole issue of individual freedom versus the protection of the herd causes some people to wonder whether democracies are going to be able to rein in the virus over the next year. The Economist took a look at this and noted that many people would look at the pandemic and conclude that democracies are bad at tackling infectious diseases. They note that America and the EU had months to prepare after China sounded the alarm in January. Both have subsequently suffered more than 300 confirmed deaths per million people. China's Communist Party reports an official death rate that is 99% lower and has trumpeted its apparent success in containing the outbreak domestically. Of course, I do want to Note that I received a report from someone I know quite well that was noodling around on the net and found that some people have dug up satellite photos from the, in the public domain taken in China in October that showed that something was filling up the hospitals in China about that time. That certainly does not prove it was COVID-19, but you have to wonder. We've heard reports from many, many different sources, including Mr. Wen Zhao, who spoke to us from Toronto, Canada that the death rate in China was much greater than has been admitted by the authorities. And frankly, nobody believes the numbers that are coming out of Russia. New Zealand has similar numbers, and theirs are plausible. It appears, in fact, that the country is about to become COVID-free, at least for now. Then again, New Zealand is an island nation, far from other countries, and uh, able to close itself down much more effectively than most nations can. Oh, and, and they also tried... Testing, contact tracing, and isolation, which, which works well when you do it, at least early. When you're totally overwhelmed by cases, as we talked about on last week's show, um, you know, it, 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 at that point, this is no longer an option. But if you look across the United States right now, you realize that various rural communities still do have the possibility of containing the disease locally by doing those things when it shows up. Anyway, after studying epidemics uh, from 1960 to 2019, The Economist concluded that political freedom can be a tonic against disease. They note that in these various outbreaks, uh, contagiousness and lethality can be quite different, but a correlation did emerge that among countries with similar wealth, the lowest death rates tended to be in places where most people can vote in free and fair elections. Other definitions of democracy gave similar results. Speaking of fair and free elections, it'd be nice if we could conduct those here in the United States. Georgia just had an election, and it didn't go so well. We noted on the show over 15 years ago that Georgia was one of the first states to go to uh, a touchscreen voting, something which we discussed, something which we spent a lot of time talking about for its ability to uh, reduce uh, free and fair elections. And when you know it, Georgia apparently got some new voting machines, which combined touchscreens with scanned paper ballots. The polls got staffed by fewer workers because of coronavirus concerns. At least that's what they said. Was described as a reduced workforce contributed to officials consolidating polling places, which disproportionately affected neighborhoods with high concentrations of people of color. What a surprise. 
Some voters said they requested mail-in ballots that never arrived. And apparently the current governor of Georgia was the guy that ordered up these new machines back when he was in charge of that duty, working in state government. Republican leaders in Georgia blamed the meltdowns on officials in Fulton and DeKalb counties, which are Democratic strongholds with significant black populations. The current Republican Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger told the AP, when these things arise, and really specifically in one or two counties, it leads us back to the failures of the management of the county election directors in those counties. It has nothing to do with what we're doing in the rest of Georgia. Anyway, this country's supposed to hold a national election come next November. Let's hope we do, and that it goes well. And regarding that, let's take a look at the briefing section of the current week magazine. It is generally excellent in quality, and I think this one is no exception. The title of it is Russia's 2020 Plan. Under the sub-headline, the Kremlin has been emboldened by its successful attack on the 2016 election and is coming back for more. To the question, will Russia interfere again, the magazine replied with, it never stopped. The Russian trolls and military hackers who undermined U.S. democracy in 2016 have continued their efforts to confuse and divide Americans, something agreed upon by all U.S. intelligence agencies. As November approaches, the Kremlin is engaged in a multi-front cyber attack. Russia has deployed social media bots to boost Senator Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign, U.S. officials said, in which Sanders apparently acknowledged and denounced. And last week, the NSA announced that a hacking group called Sandworm, part of the Russian military unit that stole 50,000 Democratic National Committee emails in 2016, has launched a campaign to penetrate email servers in the U.S., U.S. security experts were puzzled why Russia didn't wreak more havoc in 2016 after targeting election systems in all 50 states and penetrating Illinois' registration database. It was probably reconnaissance, said Michael Daniel, a cybersecurity expert, speaking to Congress, preparing for an even more ambitious future strike. To the question, what's their objective, the magazine said, to sow chaos, inflame existing political divisions, and destroy public faith in elections and democracy. Desinformatia, the tactic of pumping propaganda into rival nations, flourishes on social media, where Russians can easily pose as Americans. Russia's pretty good at infiltrating. It's gotten into the National Rifle Association and evangelical groups and has organized at least 22 political rallies on U.S. soil. And here's the part I think we really need to go into. To the question, what did Russia do in 2016? Something we've talked about on this show many times, but we're going to do it one more time. Said the magazine, four U.S. spy agencies, a GOP-controlled Senate committee, and special counsel Robert Mueller all concluded that Moscow ordered the attack in 2016 to spread disinformation and help elect Donald Trump. Russia's cyber operations directly were approved by Russian President Vladimir Putin. They employed more than 800 people who created memes, fake accounts, and bogus news articles to stoke Republican fear and anger and to convince Sanders supporters and African Americans that Clinton was corrupt and a racist. The DNC emails Russia stole and selectively published in WikiLeaks showed that party officials wanted Clinton to win the primaries, angering Sanders' supporters. We all remember this, don't we? 
In his 22-month investigation, Mueller did not find proof of an explicit criminal conspiracy between the Russians and the Trump campaign, but he did conclude that Russia had interfered in a sweeping and systematic fashion and that the Trump campaign had been receptive to Russia's help. Some 272 contacts between Trump's campaign and Russian-linked operatives were documented in 38 in-person meetings. Trump aides overheard Roger Stone, later convicted of obstructing the Mueller probe, discussing coming WikiLeaks dumps with Trump. Trump's campaign manager, Paul Manafort, gave detailed state polling data to a Russian oligarch and later lied about it. Standing beside Putin at a summit meeting in Helsinki in 2018, and I hope you do remember this, dear listener, Trump said, I don't see any reason why Russia would have interfered. After all, he'd just spoken to Vladimir Putin, who was sharing the dais with him. To the question, are election systems vulnerable? They note that the nation's nearly 8,000 local voting jurisdictions use a complex patchwork of websites, databases, and hardware, giving hackers countless potential targets. In the 2018 midterm elections, an estimated one-third of jurisdictions used voting machines that were at least 10 years old. Russia is clearly keen to exploit American weaknesses, and in February... An aide to the Director for National Intelligence, Joseph McGuire, told Congress that Moscow will try to ensure Trump's re-election. Trump berated McGuire for the briefing and fired him days later. The new DNI is former Representative John Ratcliffe, Republican of Texas. He's a fierce Trump's defender. He's a fierce Trump defender who has questioned whether Russia really favored Trump in 2016. It should be noted that while election officials across the U.S. have insisted for years that voting systems are not connected to the Internet and therefore can't be hacked, it should be noted that it would take only a second of online activity for those machines to be compromised. And last August, a group of cybersecurity experts discovered dozens of back-end election systems in 10 states that had been connected to the Internet, some for over a year. Moreover, many counties use wireless modems, some embedded directly into the voting machines, to transmit results quickly to state officials. Russia is preparing to exploit this technology, allegedly sending GRU operatives to Rio de Janeiro and other cities to conduct operations through closed-access hacking, which allows break-ins through Wi-Fi networks. Hackers could exploit components of the election hardware chain, including wireless-enabled printers, USB drives with registration rolls, or digital check-in tablets. Harry Hursty, a data security expert from Finland, believes tampering with vote counts is possible. Once you understand how everything works, he says, you understand how fragile everything is. And if that isn't getting you riled up, let's quote this article from New Scientist in the final minute we have in this segment which notes the data on millions of U.S. voters is being illegally traded on the dark web as the U.S. is gearing up for the 2020 presidential election, and this data could be used to attempt to influence voters. The cybersecurity firm Trend Micro analyzed 600 dark web forums dealing in underground trading and found that databases of U.S. voter information containing names, addresses, and political affiliations could be bought for $9.99 or less, a fraction of the going rate in the dark web for 1,000 fake YouTube likes, which sets you back 26 bucks. This is something we've been paying attention to since, I think, the sixth show we did on this program, and obviously we need to continue to do so. But we should take a break at this moment. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. 